Well, we are now into our fourth week of exploring this extended teaching of Jesus as he ministers to, as we have uh, been told at the beginning, thousands of people. To date, we have observed as he taught the crowd to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees or the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We have seen as he taught them to fear only he who can kill the body after death, i.e. God. We, can, we, we should not fear the devil. We should only fear God in the right sense because it is only he that can ultimately kill the body and kill us after death. We saw as he explained the circumstances in which one can blaspheme the Holy Spirit and reminded his listeners that everything we have, everything we have, everything we are, is from God and ultimately is God's. And we, if you remember, we looked that whatever possessions we have, we've got to hold them loosely and use them wisely. Last week, for those who were here, Steve reminded us of Jesus' encouraging teaching to not be anxious. Not be anxious. God knows you. He knows who you are and he knows your circumstances. And he gives us these two wonderful pictures, didn't he? He says, look to the birds. Does he not feed them? They don't go hungry. Look to the lilies of the field. Does God not clothe them more beautifully than Solomon's temple? How much more does he love you and care for you? Challenging, isn't it? So far, this whole preach that we've been exploring of Jesus is challenging. And that is only going to get worse because Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. His preaching and teaching is intensifying because his time is short. So I make no apologies that, as we have already, and as we will continue to do over the coming months, what we say and how, what, what we're going to explore in God's word, it's not going to be easy for us to take. It's not going to be easy to hear. We are going to be challenged. But remember that God loves us and he sent his Holy Spirit to help us and to guide us as we explore and understand and apply these things into our lives. Praise God for that. But today, we pick up on Jesus' teaching at a point where the theme switches from ceasing to be anxious about worldly possessions to that of being spiritually prepared for his second coming. Spiritually prepared for his second coming. So if you have your Bibles with you, who's got their Bibles? Why am I seeing still so many phones being handed up, lifted up? Right. Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Good. If you, go, if you have your Bibles, in whatever form that may take, please turn with me to Luke 12. And we're picking Jesus' preach up at verse 
35. Thank you. 35. Luke 12, verse 35, which says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act accordant to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, that and, and did what deserved beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required." And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand much the more. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the beautiful gift of your word. Lord, we don't pretend that your word isn't easy. Lord, it's incredibly challenging sometimes. But Lord, we know that the reason that you challenged your disciples and you challenged every follower, every person, Lord, is because of your deep love for us and your desire for us to come back into your fold and to be holy as you you are holy. So, Lord, I just pray that this morning you open my lips, you help me communicate clearly, Lord, and that you open all of our ears and all of our hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in the military, there is a command that is given called stand to arms. Stand to arms, or for sure, it's often just referred to as stand to. The purpose of this order is to call personnel into a state of readiness for a potential enemy attack. It is often called 
at dusk and at dawn because that is mo the most likely time that the enemy would attack. Those military personnel would wait quietly during this time. They would wait patiently. They would be observing their arc of fire, anticipating and preparing for the enemy to appear. Now, Jesus isn't our enemy, not at least for those who have surrendered their life to him anyway. But the principle behind this stand to command is uh, uh, this, uh, this, this, uh, the readiness of this stand to command is the same principle found here in Jesus's opening parable. Jesus begins in verse 35 by saying this, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Here, Jesus gives us two visual pictures of an attitude of readiness for his return in which he expects his followers to adopt. The first being stay dressed for action or literally you could say let your loins stay girded. Now, in Jesus' day, men and women wore robes which were difficult to run in. I don't know if anyone, I mean, I've, I've, I won't say if any of the guys have dressed in, you know, particularly in this country, but if, if you have worn a long dress or a long robe, it's particularly hard to run in. So if they were required to do that or be prepared to run, think of maybe the, the military or someone who's needing to flee from something, what they would do is they would hook up their robes and tie it into their belts to be able to give the freedom of movement in the legs or they would hook it under their legs and tie it around their waist to be able to give this freedom of movement and be able to run quickly. The second visual picture that he gives here is to keep your lamp burning, which brings to mind uh, a lamp or a, a flame flickering in the lamp in the middle of the night in darkness. Lamps are most effective at night. They help you to see where you're going, but they also help you to see who is coming towards you. So a lamp that remains burning throughout the night and the natural lamp that shines throughout the day gives you visual awareness at all times. So you have this picture here of this visual awareness at all times and this picture of readiness. And these two analogies play nicely into the parable that Jesus shares to help make his point about being ready. Verse 36 says this. So he's just said, um, he's just said, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And he goes on and says, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Now, wedding feasts back in those days are a bit different to wedding feasts that we would probably know. They could last days and their servants wouldn't know when the master of the house would suddenly return or be looking to return. And verse 38 in our passage 
helpfully illustrates this by mentioning the Jewish, what the Jewish watches of the night. He's saying here he may return in the second watch, which is between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning. But then again, he might return in the third watch, which was between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, which is why it was important to remain alert and have everything in order, ready for when he did eventually return. Any doubt, uh, Downton Abbey fans here? Oh, I'm sure there's more than that, come on. Well, I can say, how many times have we seen it now? I think we've gone through three times. Guys, was a bit obsessed. But think of Carson. He was the, the chief butler. Is that the right terminology? He's the chief butler, right? The question I have is, do you think he would allow all the staff in the house to sit around idle, you know, waiting for their master to turn up? Of course not. He was, for anyone who's watched it, I mean, he was quite on it. You know, everything had its place. Everything was in order, waiting for when Lord Grantham would return from wherever he was going. And Jesus again emphasises this point of readiness. Can you get the theme here? This, this continuous point Jesus is trying to make. Again, he emphasises this point of readiness in verse 39 by using the analogy of one who, if they knew when a burglar was going to break in, would be ready to stop it from happening. So it is for every God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christian on the planet, just like Carson, and just like the, the watchful servants, if you will, we are to live daily with an expectation that Jesus will return at any moment. Any moment. Now, we do not have time today to go into the prophecies of the end times. Maybe that's for another time. Today, let us just agree that for those of us who at least have a grounding in our scriptures, there is one truth, that he will return at some point that we do not know. But this all sounds rather tiring, doesn't it? All this being ready and keeping watch, it all sounds rather tiring. But Jesus says that there is a positive outcome for those who remain faithful and who remain in this state of readiness. What is the first verse, the first word, sorry, of verse 37? Blessed. Blessed. What a great word. And something, that means something positive for us. Blessed. Blessed are those servants. Now, in this parable, who do you think represents the servants? Us, his followers, his disciples. Blessed are those servants whom the master, who's the master? In this, Jesus. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Jesus is the master who in this analogy has gone away to the banquet, i.e., he ascended back to heaven, didn't he? He's gone away, but he will return. And the servant is every faithful, believing follower of Christ who will be blessed on his return by receiving that our promised reward, entrance into glory with him forever. 
That should get us excited. Amen, indeed. But he goes on. Truly I say to you, he, Jesus, will dress himself for service and have them, us, recline at table and he will come and serve them. When I read this, it reminded me of a similar event in which Jesus did a similar act. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. If Jesus appeared here, right now, back in the flesh, taken away everything else that would happen when that happens, <laughs> right? let's just say he pops in to see us at welcome, would you let him wash your feet? Let's be honest. We would be like, no, I've got to do yours, Lord. Well, I would be anyway, because I'm a, I'm a fallen human. You know, I don't, you know, in that moment, I mean, he is Christ, you know, he's, oh, he's God. But as we know in the story, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking the towel, he tied it around his waist. That there ties into this verse we've just seen. That is Jesus dressing himself for service. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was draped around him. That is his service. That is his service. I remember when Jesus came the first time, when he walked the earth, he came as the ultimate servant sent from God the Father as confirmed in many passages. As an example, when a dispute broke out against the disciples about who was the greatest among them, Jesus turns around and says, for who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, i.e. the guest? But he said this, but I among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. And when James and John request to be seated next to him in glory, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But the picture here we get of this, of this second coming for the faithful who have received Jesus as Lord, who have served him on the earth, and who have waited expectantly for his return, will be a place at his eternal table in glory as his friends. A reality that is only made possible because of Jesus' great act of servanthood when he came to this earth and he went to that cross as a ransom for you and a ransom for me, when he sacrificed himself to pay the debt back to God the Father that we could not pay and we would never be able to pay. An act that opened the door of hope and reconciliation between us and the Father for all who would but recognise their need for a saviour and to surrender themselves 
against the allures of this world to say, I need you. Because nothing in this world satisfies. It may for a moment, but then it drifts off. Oh, I have these spontaneous moments of joy and happiness because I've got all this stuff and I can go and do all of this stuff. But it's surprising that we seem to go around the same cycle because it wears off and we need something new, we need something new. Because nothing satisfies. Only Christ, only Jesus satisfies in the end. Friends, I really want to tell you this morning, every person, all people have the invitation to have a seat at Christ's table at the end of days. Oh, there could be people here today thinking, yeah, I'm not even sure that I believe in Jesus. Friends, I tell you, there is nothing more true, there's nothing more real than the reality of Jesus. And he's inviting you into that glorious, eternal fellowship with him. Oh, we think we have a long life here, 80, 90 years on this earth. It's a blink of an eye compared to eternity. And I tell you what, I would rather sit at Christ's table and enjoy eternity with him than go to the other place. Oh, 70, 80 years is a blink. It's nothing. Will you accept that invitation? Have you accept that invitation? Is that invitation, are you holding it to your heart every day or is it just thrown on the mantelpiece as you get on with the life in the world? The invitation is open to all. So Jesus finishes sharing this parable and Peter pipes up. You've got to love Peter, don't you? Oh, I love Peter. I can't wait to have conversations with Peter because I think he puts his foot in it a lot of the time like I do. So I think we've got a bit of a bond going. Right? But Peter pipes up and he asks Jesus a question. Verse 41. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all people? For us or for all? Now remember that there were thousands of people present, including the 12 disciples who were close to Jesus, and there would have been, quite probably, many hundreds more of Jesus' followers who had followed him to this point. So I think, in fairness to Peter, this was quite a good question to clarify. Who are you saying this to, Lord? And in true Jesus' style, he doesn't actually answer the question. Not directly, anyway. But says to Peter... Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Sorry, that was verse 42. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So what's Jesus saying here? Well, the manager whom the master puts in place to manage and care for and look after the staff in the master's absence 
represents all who have been given responsibility in Jesus' church, those who are called to care for his flock and also those who are called to protect God's word at all costs. Jesus goes on in verse 43, blessed, there's blessed again, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing these things when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Here in this, uh, this metaphorical picture, if you will, we see that even the manager though he has been given responsibility, is still ultimately a servant of Christ and will be rewarded for being a faithful, prudent follower of Christ and in his administering of his responsibilities. But Jesus continues this metaphor by sharing with Peter three consequences for three types of servants who have all disobeyed the master's orders at various times. Let me say that again. Jesus continues his metaphor by sharing with Peter three consequences for three types of servants who have all disobeyed the master's orders at various levels. The first is seemingly a parallel to the faithful servant we have just seen. So Jesus turns around and says in verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master, so instantly, thinking about this, this is someone who does believe in Jesus, okay? My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Or should I say someone who is representing Jesus? You could argue... now. We could have done a whole message just on these three analogies that Jesus gives us. We don't have time for that today. But simply put, you could argue that what he's referring to, in essence, for someone, for us to be able to get a picture of, you could say a false teacher. He's lost their way. We're still representing Christ, but not really. And he's leading people astray. He then goes on to the second analogy here, second metaphor, verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. You could argue here that this is a representation of the lazy Christian the idle Christian who believes but still just enjoying the world, not studying God's word and seeing how it can apply to his life, missing the countless opportunities to be able to share that growth of knowledge in Christ with others. 
active laziness, idle Christian. And the third, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. There are three, as I said, there are three consequences here. And that last one, it's just, it's the ignorant Christian. I didn't know. That's why God gave us his word. That's why he tells us, tells us to be part of a church body. There are so many Christians out there who call themselves Christian but who refuse to be part of a church body because they don't believe it or they, they, they think it's full of hip, hip, hypocrisies. Welcome to the club. So they do it, they go out on their own. They're ignorant. They don't listen to people pulling them up and saying, no, your interpretation of that is wrong. In essence, Jesus shared this, para, uh, th- this parallel between the faithful servants and these three levels of rebellious servants to make the point that on his return, each and every one of his servants, i.e., every single one of us who calls ourselves a follower of him will be evaluated. Okay? We will be evaluated based on our faithfulness with the knowledge that we have of God and of his word and in our application of that knowledge. We've seen this before. We know that we will all come before the, the, the judgment seat of Christ. This is just another angle that's b- that Jesus is bringing in here. Let me say that again. Each and every one of us, i.e. his servants, will be evaluated based on our faithfulness with the knowledge that we have of God and his word. Because every one of us has at different levels of understanding and knowledge about his word. And we will also be evaluated in how we've used that knowledge. How we've applied that knowledge. Those that remain faithful grow in the knowledge and use that knowledge wisely will be rewarded. But those who know the truth but abuse it or live ignorant of it will be punished for doing so. But there is more. The severity, the severity of their punishment will be based on the level of knowledge that they have and the responsibility within God's family they hold confirmed by Jesus in the last verse, in verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given of much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So to answer Peter's question, yes, Jesus is including him and the other twelve, and all the believers that were there, and all the believers throughout the whole whole of time in this teaching about being ready, 
alert and expectant for Jesus' return and not to fall into idleness. Remember, Jesus' close disciples, the twelve, would have received more teaching and instruction than others back then and have a great understanding of Jesus' teaching the most. And as a result of that, Jesus would have a greater expectation upon them to use that knowledge to advance the kingdom, to care for the church that would be born, and to protect the truth of God's word. Anything less is just not acceptable. So it is with us. Whether you are a pastor or you're new to faith, Jesus, on his return, will evaluate every one of us. And he will do so based on our knowledge of his word and the faithfulness in which we conduct the responsibilities he has given us. And that even ties into the simple fact of sharing the hope that is within you. Now, the reality is, and listen, this, this, this gets hold of me more than it does you guys. I recognize as a pastor, he's gonna, he is gonna, he's gonna judge me ha- more harshly because he's given me greater responsibility. But we all have a responsibility because there is a hope inside us that we are encouraged to share to a world that is in desperate need of Christ. So Jesus has shared his parable and he's answered Peter's question. All should remain in a state of readiness. All in that time grow in our understanding of God and his word and apply that knowledge. Listen, we don't want to get too bogged down with, oh, this is all doom and gloom. It's really simple. Live with the joy and the hope in our heart that we are saved that Christ loves us, that he died for us. And what he asks for us in return is just live loving me, worshipping me, and sharing what I've done to the world. If we do that and we reject what the world is trying to give us, then there's no problem, is there? But all of this raises a couple of questions. What does it look like to remain ready? What does it look like to remain ready? And what is the benefit of doing so? And as always, God's word gives us a clue. 2 Peter 3, 11 to 14 says, and I'm reading this in the NLT, since everything around us is going to be destroyed, what holy and godly lives you should live looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And this is the verse I want to get you get hold of. And so, dear friends, While you are waiting for these things to happen, make 
every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. There's a real sense of urgency in Peter's words here, challenging believers that the prospect of Christ's return should impact our everyday living. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, we can't take any of our possessions with us. In fact, Peter says here, it's all going to be destroyed. So to live every day always being ready for that day of glory when Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth are established can and should help us, every one of us, to put the demands of our daily life in its proper place. The piled dishes or lawn that needs to be mowed maybe shouldn't tax our relationship with our family members. Maybe we don't need to invest so much emotion, so much time or money in our appearances and how we look when we remember everything we glimpse now will fade. And maybe we could invest in the things that make for peace and spiritual fruit with greater passion and greater commitment. So said a writer at Christianity.com, I couldn't find their name, but true words. When we live every day with the hope of Christ's coming, it puts things in perspective, or should. Titus also repeats, in the letter, uh, Titus uh, repeats this same sentiment. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godliness, sorry, godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, with righteousness and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. But it isn't just about reshuffling of the priority list in our lives that changes as we take seriously the call to live ready for his coming. The urgency to share the gospel and be a witness should become a weight in our hearts that we just can't shake. How many souls do we know will be lost on that day? How many friends do we know will be lost on that day? family members will be lost on that day. What happens if he comes back tomorrow or next week? All those moments we had to share, the should-ofs, the could-ofs, but didn't. Yes, we should be excited as we await the anticipation of that day, but it should also give us a kick up the backside. I'm sorry to say, but a kick up the backside to do our best with God's help to be 
sowing the seeds of the gospel before it's too late. And I recognise that people struggle with how to do that. And we will, as a church, be looking at some practical ways to teach people what to say, how to say it, and how to, how to share your faith. A story is told of three pastors who went to visit a preacher to try to understand how his ministry had grown so fast with so many people coming to faith and in the hope that they would learn his secret. On their arrival, the preacher turns around to the pastors and says, look out the window and tell me what you see. So they look out the window and the first pastor turns around and says, well, I see a couple of people down in the street just chatting and laughing and just enjoying, enjoying the day. The second pastor looks out the window and says, well, there's a window cleaner over there just going about his business, just getting on with his day. And the third pastor turns around and says, well, just over in the green over there, I can see a family just enjoying a picnic and enjoying the, the day's sun. As they turn back to look at the preacher, they notice him weeping, weeping. And he said to them, I see lost, hopeless, and condemned souls. That is what drives me to share the boldness of the hope in me with people. How many times do we walk down the street and just see people going about their business and not even think? We should be like that preacher. Friends, our prayer this week should be, Lord, rekindle this urgency in my heart. Holy Spirit, awaken me to the reality of the unknown hour and time and allow that truth or the truth of that grab hold of me so I weep for the 30,000 people in Whitney who are lost or currently lost. Can I invite the band up, please? A church as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, this place, this earth in which we live is not our true home. Not our true home. The writer of Hebrews says, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. As a church, we must allow the anticipation of that day, that day of Christ's return, when he comes to take us home, be the foundation in which we live our daily life, in which or in how we view the world and how we view people. Stay dressed for action, Jesus says. Keep your lamps burning because the Lord will return on a day and time that you do not expect. And he will evaluate what we have done in the period, in this period of our anticipated waiting and the wonderful truth and knowledge of Christ that we have been given. I think to summarise all of this, and in closing, I just want to read a couple of verses from 1 Peter 2. And Peter says these words, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners 
to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbours, that even if you, even if they cause you, accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honourable behaviour and they will give honour to God when he judges the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you.